We'll be reading from Jeremiah chapter 12 and verse 1. Jeremiah 12, verse 1, New American Standard. Righteous art thou, O Lord, that I would plead my case with thee. Indeed, I would discuss matters of justice with thee. Why has the way of the wicked prospered? Why are all those who deal in treachery at ease? So just out of curiosity, I started paging through the Old and the New Testament trying to find other uh, verses that expressed a similar sentiment to the one that uh, Ronnie just read from Jeremiah chapter 12 and verse 1. Uh, Not surprisingly, it was not at all difficult to find those passages. Both Old Testament and New Testament are replete with the kinds of expressions of of, uh, questioning God, a doubt, wondering what's going on, why is this happening to me, why is this happening to my loved ones. Let me just give you four of those passages that I found from the New Testament, and I'll guarantee you that if you were to look yourself, you would find many, many more. One of them begins, or or let me begin with Matthew chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. That, of course, is the Sermon on the Mount. And this is right after Jesus gave the Beatitudes. And so seven times he has says, now, if you will do these things or if you will develop these attributes, you will be blessed or happy or fortunate. And then right on the heels of those seven blessings that the Lord pronounces in verses 11 and 12, he kind of throws us a curveball because he says, blessed are you. This is probably not what they were expecting. Blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. For great is your reward in heaven for so persecuted they the prophets that were before you. Now, I'm not sure, I don't want this at all to be disrespectful, but I imagine some of the disciples who were hearing that was thinking, Lord, you really don't need to put that in the recruiting manual. I mean, this doesn't sound like something that would really cause anyone to say, hey, I want to sign up and I want to become a disciple of Jesus. And then later, Paul is writing these words in Romans chapter 12. In verse 17, he says, repay no no one evil for evil. Do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. Verse 19, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So there the Lord is saying, now it's not your place to seek retribution or vengeance. That, that's my place. I will make sure that justice is realized. Something very similar in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. Peter, of course, writing these words, and he says, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling. I went back and looked up that word reviling, and you know what it means in our, in our modern vernacular? That would be trash talking. That would be uh, talking to someone or about someone in a derogatory sort of way. So Peter is saying God's people ought not to even speak that way. You don't act that way, you don't think that way, and you don't speak that way. Just one more, back to, to the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 5, 41 and 42, Jesus said, Whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. Again, none of that sounds like something that you would uh, want to lead with, you know, in trying to convince someone to become a disciple of the Lord. But all of them, as counterintuitive as they may sound, All of these passages and all the others that that sound like that and express the same kind of thought are absolutely critical to building our our Christian life, to building our character, to helping us realize what walking in the footsteps of Jesus really is all about. 
And it isn't just sitting around waiting for somebody to compliment me or for somebody to send me a note of encouragement. That's a wonderful thing when that happens, no doubt. But there are going to be times when, when, when you're going to be going through the crucible. There'll be times, and Peter especially spends a lot of time in his first letter talking about the reality of, of the fact that when you signed on to become a Christian, guess what? There's going to be some persecution. There's going to be some people that don't like you. Over in chapter 4, he talked about how that they will, they'll speak evil of you. And he said, you just need to be aware of that. So I'm just saying that, as by way of introduction, that among the saddest lessons that we have to learn in life, and especially as children of God, is that life simply isn't fair. The rich get richer, the poor, it seems, get poorer, nice people suffer, and bad people prosper. And I'm telling you that that's a truth as old as Scripture itself. And if you need to be reminded of that, spend some time this afternoon reading Psalm 73. There was a man who's the central uh, figure of Psalm 73 by the name of Asaph. And, and, And we call this Asaph's dilemma because he almost lost his faith over this conundrum. And he looked around and he saw wicked people prospering and righteous people suffering. And he said, I couldn't figure it out. And my feet almost slipped. That just means he almost lost his faith over that issue. Let me tell you something. And you know, you know it already, but I just want to, to make sure that, that this gets said at some point in this lesson. We're still dealing with that conundrum. We're still wrestling with that issue of why do righteous people suffer the way they suffer. And we look around and it seems like people who have no regard for God are prospering in every way. And then again in Jeremiah chapter 12, verse 1, the text that was read. But look at it again. Righteous are you. This is righteous, weeping prophet Jeremiah. And, and here's what he says in his, in his alone moment with God. Righteous are you, O Lord, when I plead with you. So he's already acknowledging the just nature of God. But then he goes on to say, yet let me talk with you about your judgments. Why does the way of the wicked prosper Why are those happy who deal so treacherously? So Jeremiah is saying, I'm having problems with this. I do not understand why that those who who shake their fist in the face of God can prosper the way they do. And why they can treat God's people in such a treacherous way and they get away with it. Jeremiah was saying, I'm, I'm westling with all of these issues that people have been of God have been wrestling with for generations. And let me add, we continue to wrestle with these issues. Now, personally, I'm not sure why, but I have less of a problem with wicked people prospering than I do with righteous people suffering. I know that when it gets right down to it, that there are no truly righteous people. In the sense that our Lord was righteous, who knew no sin, never made a mistake, we don't even pretend to be at that level of righteousness. We all acknowledge that, I hope. But but you know what I mean. I'm talking about genuinely humble, devout, consistent believers who it seems like still suffer more than most. So in 2021 and even in the new year, I'm sure we'll continue to wrestle with this spiritual conundrum. Why does this happen? And more important than that, perhaps more to the core of the issue, is why would God allow that to happen? Why why do we see righteous people suffering? And why do we see wicked people prospering? It's enough to make anyone of even a modest means feel guilty. 
Because we sit and we say, I am so comparatively fortunate. Why is it that I'm not suffering like those righteous people suffering that I, I know of? I, I've known of people who, for example, have, have dedicated their lives to mission work. And I mean the whole deal, all in. They, they sold their houses, their possessions here in the United States. They go to a foreign land. They have to learn a new language. They have to adapt to a new lifestyle and culture. Sometimes they're doing that in, in third world countries. You know, they had uh, wall-to-wall plush carpeting at home. They go and live in a place where there's a dirt floor in their house. And, and yet, having made all those sacrifices, they've suffered horribly with chronic diseases, difficulties in their works, congregations that drop their support without any notice whatsoever and they oftentimes have to come back to the United States just to be able to raise more funds. And, and yet here we sit in our air-conditioned church building with the padded pews, our luxury cars and clothes that are not only functional, but they're stylish. We live in our nice houses, which for some of us, the biggest decision that we had to make when we were having our house built was, do we build a, you know, a bonus room for the kids to play in? Or do we have a home theater for the adults to be entertained in? And then we dare complain. We have to ask at this point, why them and not us? Why would God allow those righteous people to suffer so? And I really hope this morning that we're self-aware enough to be asking those kinds of questions. If not, hopefully, before this lesson is over, we will be. We see selfless people who give up everything to go to the mission field, only... Sometimes to lose a spouse or to lose a child while they're there or to suffer some debilitating disease. The only real answer that we can give after moments of reflection on those kinds of situations is simply to say, life isn't fair. That sounds totally inadequate. I know that. I realize that. But that's the conclusion that we have to come to. Because there is no equity and there is no justice in this world alone. We're not going to see the, the ledger books balanced out in this life. And, and we've got God's assurance over and over again that that's the case. So if we're looking for a day in which life will be fair, good luck with that. God tells us that, that you need to be prepared for the worst, but expect the best. Live uh, your life with faith and confidence in God that he's going to take care of you, that he will never leave you. We talked about that last Sunday morning, and all of that is absolutely true. But we're living in the here and now. And we're acknowledging that life isn't fair, so how do we deal with that? How do we handle that? By the way, we need to be careful when we make a pronouncement like that, that life isn't fair, because if we're not careful, we can be, we can be saying when we, when we make that statement that, that God isn't fair. We need to be careful. You know, it's a scriptural fact that, that when it comes to this very question, God has never chosen to defend himself. May I say that again? God never has chosen to defend himself, even with Job of Old Testament fame. And you know all about the sufferings of Job if you've read that book. It's all autobiographical. It's all about what Job experienced and how that he lost everything, including his family. And, and through it all, Job asked why. By the way, if you interpret the patience of Job to mean that Job never asked God questions, then you need to reread the book. You're not reading the same Job that I'm reading. He asked that question over and over again. In fact, he asked it so often that over in, in Job chapter 12 and verse 6, that uh, Job says this, 
The tents of robbers prosper, and those who provoke God are secure. That is, those who shake their fist in the face of God don't have anything to worry about because they're not going to get theirs. Nothing is going to happen to them. But again, God never chose to defend himself even when Job was making these kinds of accusations. And I mean, these are not in any way disguised or or hidden. They're not back in the... He's asking him some hard questions. But in the midst, and I don't want us to miss this, in the midst of all of Job's questions, God merely asked Job some questions of his own. There are 40 of them, by the way, but it begins with, where were you? When I formed the foundations of the earth, tell me that if you have understanding. Folks, that is not a defense. That's a pop quiz. And by the way, Job was not, he was not able to answer any one of those questions. Let me say this at this point, that God by his very nature and definition is right. Even when he seems to be wrong. God is always right. And even when we, through, through sin-tinted eyes, we, we see this world, we see our place in it, and we wonder why God allows such evil on this planet. And I don't know if you've talked to your unchurched friends much, but usually that's the first question that comes up in the mind of an unbeliever and in the conversation with people who don't believe in God, is that if there is a righteous God, why does he allow all of this evil to take place on this earth? Good question. And it's certainly one that needs to be answered, but it needs to be answered thoughtfully and biblically and not emotionally. But again, Job dealt with that, and, and God asked him those difficult questions. But, but God, God is right even when he seems to be wrong. So, so I, I'm not going to question his sovereignty. I, I'm not going to expect him to run the universe the way that I would run it. If I were in charge, heaven forbid. We puny, finite beings, we might decide that we're just going to remove John 14, 6 from the Bible. And we're going to let anybody into the kingdom who just seems like a nice, decent person. That's the passage I remind you where Jesus very forthrightly tells his disciples and us, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. And we might have told those men over in the parable of the workers that those who worked the longest would get paid the most, and those who came on and started their work later in the day would be paid accordingly. And that's because that would have been fair. That's the way we would have worked that parable, and that's probably the way we would have written it or told it, because that would have been fair. But it certainly would not have been an accurate picture of redemption. And if you've looked at the parable closely, you know that's what that parable is all about. We need to see the payment in the parable as the reward of heaven, and we need to see the day's work as coming to Christ to serve him in conversion. And we have to ask ourselves, are we, are we qualified for a larger measure of grace? Do we deserve a greater or a bigger reward because we came to Christ early in life, maybe even when we were a child, as opposed to a murderer who comes to Christ in sincere conversion when he's on his deathbed. Don't I deserve a greater reward than he does? After all, look how long I've served him. Those are the questions that we ask when we began to ponder the fact that life simply isn't fair. And yet the Lord is telling us in this parable, if you're asking those questions or if you're making those kinds of accusations, then you've kind of missed the point. 
You see, when we come to see things from heaven's viewpoint, we come to realize that, that our God is fairer than fair. And he's abundantly generous. And he is unspeakably gracious. And by gracious, I mean literally grace-filled. And aren't you glad? We know when we think about it, the, whole, the big picture... That those missionaries that I referenced earlier and anybody else who pays a huge price to follow Jesus and to do his work and to serve him despite those difficulties and those obstacles, they are going to be rewarded in the next life. That's a given. I mean, that is established everywhere in Scripture. So we understand that. But we're not talking about the reward of the next life. We're talking about what do we get. Same, same question that the disciples were asking in the first century. What do we get out of this? What happens to us when life isn't fair? How do I deal with that reality and with the harshness of it when I wake up on a Monday morning and all of a sudden everything is going in the wrong direction and my life is falling apart and it seems like every decision that I make goes sideways? Those are the days when I want to ask God, why isn't life just a little bit fairer? So, so that's the big picture. But when we find ourselves wondering... Why it is that, and you read about this in the news all the time, and some of you know it sadly in a personal way, why is it that there are innocent children who suffer? Man, I'm hearing more and more in the news about human trafficking. I can't imagine anything worse than that. And yet it's happening across our country and around our world all the time. People who are sold in into sex trade and all kinds of atrocious things. Our, our poor children are suffering abuse. And those scoundrels, due to some technicality of the law, get off serious charges when they are clearly guilty. We need to remember at this point something that we need to accept is that life isn't fair. No one ever said that it would be as long as our feet are on this planet. And the ledgers of justice, hear me now church, the ledgers of justice will not be balanced in this life. I know there are consequences for people who live righteous lives. Galatians 6, 7 points that out very clearly. And there are consequences for those who fail to live righteous lives. Solomon said the way of the transgressor. So I understand all of that. But I'm, under, I'm, I'm also asking the question, the same, the same question that Bible writers from long ago, over the generations, have been asking is, is why doesn't God smooth some of this out for his people? Heard about a guy who had that point driven home to him in a very vivid way. And you'll see in a moment that that pun was intended because it has to do with the driving uh, of his car, the, the habits. Here's what happened. He bought a brand new car. He decided that one of the things, well, actually two of the things that he was going to do with that brand new car, because he had never owned a brand new car before. He'd always bought junkers and then later on used cars that were slightly dependable. Now he finally had a new car, and he said, I'm going to put on my seatbelt, make sure I wear it anytime I'm in the car, and every time I drive my car, I'm going to drive the, I'm going to drive the speed limit. I'm serious. That's what he said. I'm going to drive the speed limit. Good luck with that. So that's what he did. For four years, every time he got in the car, he would use his cruise control to set the cruise control right where the speed limit sign said to. And for those four years, he was a stickler on that practice. And he'll tell you today that he, 
he caused quite a few traffic jams by insisting on going the speed limit. People aren't very accepting of folks who drive the speed limit. You probably have noticed that, even if you drive the far right lane. And so he got tired of people honking their horns at them, and he eventually gave up that practice. But he said those four years changed the way he drove his car. He used to compete for lanes like everybody else, get angry and perhaps even vindictive when, when he was behind the wheel, and especially if somebody cut him off. He took other drivers' offenses personally. He yelled at them accordingly. But now, because of that exercise, and for how long that he was able to keep it up, he lets other drivers be just as crazy and brazen and rude as they want to be. He just stays out of their way, and he tries to do nothing to further intimidate them or himself. In fact, he's downright courteous. When lanes merge, he alternates, lets someone in. That's the courteous thing to do. He will admit to you that sometimes when a driver has had a mile or more, you know, when they're narrowing down the lanes, they've had a mile or more to merge and and to think about merging and then to merge. And they wait to the last second to do that. He says, I make them work for it. He calls that maintaining righteous indignation. (laughs) I would tend to agree. But here's the question. Even when he's being wonderful and generous, how often is that kindness reciprocated? I mean, if he alternates and lets a car or two or three off a ramp ahead of him into a busy freeway, for example, every day for a solid week, what happens when he's the one on the ramp? And he's the one who needs a little bit of gap for people to allow him onto the expressway in order to to, to meet the flow of traffic, does anyone, and I mean anyone, alternate and let him in? You already know the answer to that. It is hardly ever. You see, the premise of this lesson is life isn't fair. And that doesn't change even even when you have eight cylinders under the hood. Now, that may seem like a trivial example, but, but I really think it's indicative of a pattern of life. It's a reminder that, that we ought to do the right thing Because it's the right thing. Let me repeat that. Because I really want you to go home and think about this. We need to do the right thing. Because it's the right thing. It's how God wants his people to act. And to talk to other people. And even to think. I know that's tough. But to think about other people in the right way because it's the right thing. It's a reminder that we should do the right thing because that's what God wants us to do. It is the will of God. And that's another question that we really need to ask in this discussion before we quit this morning. Do we do, we do the right thing just because at the moment everybody else is doing it? You know, just go with the flow. Everybody else happens to be doing the right thing. I'll do the right thing too. Or do we do the right thing because... Hey, we'll be embarrassed if somebody sees us not doing it. Or we do the right thing only in public where other people can see us and be impressed by our, our piety. That reminds me of Matthew chapter 6. How about you, the scribes and the Pharisees who did their righteous deeds in order to be seen of others. And maybe that might be our motivation at least from time to time. Hopefully the answer to all of those questions is an absolute no. We do the right thing because it's the right thing. And it's true that life isn't, isn't fair. But folks, let me tell you this, and some of you figured this out already. We don't make it right by being unfair ourselves. 
That doesn't help our cause. It doesn't help the world. It only makes it worse. And admittedly, I'm just going to be perfectly honest with you, there are times when being fair doesn't help things a whole lot either. That goes back to the premise of this lesson. But we will impact the people who are in our own little orbits of influence. They're going to be lifted up by being around us and seeing how we act and how we talk about others, even in moments of privacy. And that's really all that Jesus is asking us to do in those four passages that I looked at at the beginning of this lesson and all of the others that, that are talking about the struggle that God's men and women have had over the ages of why doesn't God straighten this out for us? Why doesn't he smooth out the path just a little bit and make life a little fairer and give a little more justice to the lives and the experiences of his own people? Jesus is just asking us to... He's not asking us to change the world in that sense. He's asking us just to transform our own hearts and to influence those around us in a way that will glorify him and make the world in which we live person by person a better place in which to live. Let me mention a a personal illustration, if I may, and then we'll be almost through. I was fortunate enough to to, to live in a house as I was growing up in which my parents tried to instill this understanding and this value in me by parents who who believed, as they would express it, you you think, I don't want to see a show of hands or anything, but think about how many times you perhaps have heard this very saying, two wrongs don't make a right. I heard that, I don't know, two and a half million times as I was growing up. By the way, they, they've done a study. Exaggerations are up like a million percent over last time. Anyway, uh, thank you, Gabe. I'll be here all week. But my parents constantly were trying to ingrain that understanding in, in my mind so that it would then eventually make a difference in the way I acted. Two wrongs don't make a right. There was no allowance for vengeance in my house. And yes, that is despite the fact that I had an older sister. There was none of, well, he did this and so I'll do that. He deserves it. It serves him right. That, that defense motion did not work at my house. For example, if you take a hot dish to the church potluck, someone carelessly breaks the bowl, knowing full well that it's yours. You're neither informed about it. You are not recompensed for the loss. So next time you'll know better, won't you? To show them you won't bring a dish next time, you'll just eat a whole lot more and make up for the loss that way. Or you'll bring food, but you'll bring it begrudgingly, and it won't be anything special. You will deliberately bring something that you know nobody likes. And you won't take it in a nice dish because you remember what happened to the last nice dish. You'll bring it in a plastic container, see if they can tear up Tupperware, and see if you care if they do. You see, that scenario would have been foreign in the house that I grew up in. My mother would have come back to the next potluck with a larger and a better dish with even better food. Was she trying to heap coals of fire on the heads of the enemy? No, she was just just doing the right thing because it's the right thing. Let's say you've given money to a cause. And now the board of directors of that organization has elected a leader that you just can't stand. So you can withdraw your support, 
And you can make life difficult for those workers who are counting on your contribution and doing injury to that overall ministry, or you can do the right thing because it's the right thing and not lower yourself to whatever level that you consider that that new leader resides. Or think about it in these terms. You lend a vehicle to your youth group, and it's returned low on gas with a tear in the upholstery full of empty soda cans and snack bags. Well, you can grit your teeth and say, they'll they'll never see my car again. Is that the right thing? I mean, after all, you were treated unfairly. Let me stop very quickly and, 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 and offer this addendum. And, and I need to be clear about this. I'm not suggesting that you do not speak forthrightly to the person in charge and that you take this lying down. You see, there's a major difference in doing the right thing because it isn't fair and letting yourself get be walked on because you're not bold enough to be honest. Someone should be taken to task for the poor treatment of your property. That's understood. But to withhold your generosity in order to even the score would be to contribute to the very axiom of this lesson. Finally, let me say this as as we end this lesson, that I've never known of a single person who hated the fact that life isn't fair, who did not go around announcing that fact to everybody they saw. Isn't that pretty much true? The more someone buys into this philosophy, life isn't fair, the more they seem to take joy, some semblance of joy, even though that's certainly the wrong word, in announcing that to everyone, that life isn't fair, that, that I'm treated horribly, that all of these terrible things have happened to me and God has allowed those things to happen, it, it's like we didn't know that already. Thank you for that insightful pronouncement that life isn't fair. But people who bristle at the unfairness of life seem to wallow in it, and they allow their attitude to be governed by it. Children, in particular, are famous for saying, and and truthfully by saying, I mean whining, but that isn't fair. But you know what? They ought to grow out of it. And there are some of us who are adults who ought to grow out of it too. Don't go around whining and complaining that life isn't fair. Life isn't fair. That is a reality. But we're going to live this life in such a way that we will be lights in a world of darkness. That people will be able to see us handle the difficulties and the problems and the troubles of life in such a way that they will look at that and they will say, I I don't know what it is they have, but I want some of it. To be able to be that kind of example... And to lift people up when you're around them and not knock them down by having a pity party with everybody else that believes that life isn't fair as well. Jesus knew that during his 33 years on this earth that life wasn't fair. But he adjusted his attitude and his actions accordingly. And he went on with what his father had sent him to do, which was to seek and save the lost. Luke 19.10. Did Jesus know that life wasn't fair? Absolutely. But he still did the work that God had sent him to do. And that's just what I'm saying you and I need to be doing in the new year and all the days that are left in this old one. Jesus understood that. And that's just another way of saying that he did the right thing because it was the right thing. And that Jesus never once repaid evil for evil. And that's what we must do as well. Because here's something else I've noticed about this thing called life. The more we bemoan and complain about the fact that life isn't fair, the more unfair life seems to become. Isn't that right? 
It, it doesn't help the situation at all to constantly point out the obvious. In fact, it just makes it worse. Jesus knew that life wasn't fair, and he didn't expect it to be. Aren't we so glad that of the seven sayings of our Lord from the cross, not a one of them was, but this is so unfair. Instead, our Lord said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's the attitude we need to take with us through life. And I want you to remember this forever. Not to live in depression and cynicism, but so that we'll not go out constantly disappointed in the attitudes and the actions of others and by life's general unfairness, but so that we can live in a way that that mirrors the, the example of Jesus and we can make a real difference in the city and the world in which we live. So that when others, especially people, other people from the world are around us, they're, they're lifted up and they're not knocked down. I want to leave you with one thought here that I really believe is worth tucking away somewhere in your mind, hopefully keeping it in the forefront and taking this home with you and mulling over. The last thing I want to mention to you about life's unfairness is this. Being forgiven and being rewarded eternally isn't fair. By that I mean none of us did a thing to deserve or earn that. And yet our God is willing to offer it to us anyway. By grace you have been saved, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And so when he offers salvation to you and me, grab it and take it. Spend the rest of your life embracing it. And determine that you're going to live in an unfair world the way God has called you to live. And that is as his child. That's my message to you today, and that's what we call you to while we stand and while we sing this song.